Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Good evening and welcome to our Conversation with the Candidate series. I'm Adam Sexton, and our guest this evening is U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. Tonight we'll be getting to know Senator Klobuchar and where she stands on key issues. At the start of the show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions, and then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Amy Klobuchar was born in Plymouth, Minnesota in 1960. She went to public school there and was valedictorian of her high school class before graduating with the highest honors from Yale. She obtained her law degree from the University of Chicago and began practicing in Minnesota and was a partner at a law firm there. For eight years, Klobuchar headed the largest prosecutor's office in Minnesota, and during that time, she led an effort to pass the state's first felony DWI law. In 2006, she became the first woman elected to represent Minnesota in the U.S. Senate, winning re-election in 2012 and 2018. As a senator, she pushed for legislation to end human trafficking and to combat the opioid epidemic. Klobuchar also fought to pass consumer product safety laws to address certain toxic products, and her work led to the largest furniture recall in American history, as well as for millions of defective airbags to be removed from vehicles. Senator Klobuchar is married and has a daughter. Senator Klobuchar, thank you for joining us well, for thank Conversation you so with much, Adam. It's we great appreciate to you be being here. So there are 20-plus Democratic candidates in this field right now, and Democratic voters are looking for a winner. So what assurances can you give them that you will be victorious in November 2020? I have won every race that I have ever run. Uh, I am someone uh, that puts the people first. Um, in my state, which is like New Hampshire, uh, kind of a swing state, a purple state. I have gone to every county every year, and I go not just where it's comfortable, but where it's uncomfortable. And as a result, um, I have won every single congressional district. I won 42 counties that uh, Donald Trump uh, actually won. And I do it uh, by just looking people in the eye and telling the truth and telling them uh, what I think needs to happen. I believe in governing from opportunity and not from chaos. And I think there's just been way too much chaos going on in Washington. And what I know of New Hampshire, uh, they like to get things done and they like people uh, that are going to be looking out for them and having their back. The words constitutional crisis are being used with increasing frequency on Capitol Hill right now. We just learned that Secretary Mnuchin is not going to hand over the president's tax returns, which Congress has requested. What happens next in this ongoing scenario here? And do you worry at all about overreach by your fellow Democrats? I think the first thing we need to do is to protect our elections. Um, what Russia did is they didn't use a missile and they didn't use a tank, uh, but they used a computer and they invaded our democracy all the same. The president's head of intelligence, the president's FBI director, they've all said the same thing, that this happened. And New Hampshire is a state that believes in free elections and believes that people should have a say, not a foreign government. And that's why I think it's important that Director Mueller be able to testify, to tell us what happened. We know they broke into the elections equipment. Uh, we know that they uh, hacked into campaigns, and we just can't let this happen again. And I hope we'll pass my Secure Elections Act, uh, which requires backup paper ballots and also audits. It's a bipartisan bill with a Republican. And also 
also that we start making sure that those Facebook ads and Twitter ads, that we know where the money came from and we know what those ads are. Because last time there was a bunch of basically criminal ads, some paid for with rubles, Russian rubles, that showed up on people's feeds. You had an opportunity to question Attorney General Barr recently in his uh, handling of the Mueller investigation. Let's fast forward to a Klobuchar presidency. Let's just say we get there. What changes or reforms would you undertake at DOJ uh, to undo perhaps what some Democrats feel has been done there? That's a great question. I think the attorney general should be the people's lawyer. Yes, you work with the president and the agencies, uh, but bottom line, your job is to make sure that the law is enforced and the law is obeyed. And what really bothers me about what's happening right now is that this Attorney Jezel has not put the people first. And there are a lot of other things I would work on, of course. Um, I would make sure that our voting laws are respected and that we allow people to vote instead of stopping them from voting. I would want to make sure that the Affordable Care Act stays strong. Uh, one thing that got unnoticed this last week while that bar hearing was going on, the spectacle, this Justice Department filed a legal brief in the Fifth Circuit, which is uh, involving Texas, which basically says to repeal the entire Affordable Care Act. That means the protections on pre-existing conditions out the window. That's what they've asked for. That is all part of the Affordable Care Act or the way you can keep people on your insurance till uh, they're 26, your kids. Those are parts of the Affordable Care Act. It doesn't even matter if you're getting private insurance. Those protections are for you, and they filed something to repeal it. So certainly I wouldn't be doing those kinds of things uh, when I put an attorney general in place. What's the first action you would take on the issue of climate change? Uh, sign us back into that climate change agreement internationally. It is ridiculous. We are now the only country in the world. New Hampshire knows about this with the rising sea levels and what this means for our world with the effects it having on our forests. All through the country we've seen wildfires, we've seen flooding in the Midwest. Um, I think the video that tells it all is of that dad uh, driving his kid through those fires in Northern California, his house probably burning behind him, and he's singing to her as the flames are going over the top of their car to calm her down. It's happening now. Get in the climate change agreement and then get the clean power rules back in place as well as the gas mileage standards. And on infrastructure, you've proposed a trillion dollars in new spending to shore up uh, America's roads, uh, railways and all that. The, the president and Congress are now talking about two trillion. They have to up the ante here to compete. Up the ante, except for one thing. Adam, I've shown how I'm going to pay for it. And last time I've checked, uh, working with your great senators, Gene Shaheen and Maggie Hassan, I've seen that they are fiscally aware uh, that you've got to be careful how you pay, spend taxpayers' money. And in this point, I have made a very clear plan of how you're going to pay for this. I think we need a major investment in infrastructure. And I think there's plenty of ways with the way they did international taxation, which doesn't affect most people in New Hampshire. That brings in $150 billion and how they've structured uh, some of the corporate taxes. But what I really want to do is make sure that we have roads at work and bridges at work. We get rail to places like Manchester and this part of New Hampshire. You look at the facts. This is the only area with 500,000 or more people that doesn't have commuter rail. And that's why I think this is such a good project. I've met uh, with Mayor Craig and I have uh, met with a number of the other leaders um, in New Hampshire from labor to business. Uh, this is a great plan. And we're not gonna be able to get something like that if New Hampshire has to pay for it all themselves. There has to be help from the federal government.
Senator Klobuchar, thank you for answering these questions. Even tougher ones await, though, in the next oh, studio. Oh, that'll be fun. Coming up after the break, we'll bring our studio audience into this conversation. Stay with us. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. We're going to bring in our New Hampshire voters here to ask questions in a town hall format, and we're going to start with George Matthews. Okay. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, George. You're welcome. Um, thanks for being here. Um, I think uh, the base problem with immigration is the fact that it takes more than two years to get a hearing. I can get a hearing on almost any other matter within months. This systematic failure leaves the immigrant in legal limbo and drives up the suspicion and anger of my friends on the other side of the debate. What are your ideas and thoughts on the real problems and solutions of immigration? That's such a great question, George, just because I see this as something that we should look at uh, from an economic standpoint for our country. And we know the president is always talking about the wall, this $8 billion wall that actually put um, uh, one of your uh, uh, naval yards here at risk, but saved by your two senators, Senator Shaheen and Senator Hassan, as well as your Congress members. But the point is uh, that what we should be doing is talk about the economic implications here if we don't do anything. And the weight that you're talking about is about a number of people who have come in here that want to come in legally, uh, that may want asylum. Uh, there are people here legally on temporary status. So what I think we need is comprehensive immigration reform. I look at this as we need workers right now. We need them in our factories and our farms. We need them in our nursing homes and our hospitals. We need new ideas. And the economic facts are that around 70 of our Fortune 500 CEOs came from other countries. 25% uh, of our U.S. Uh, Nobel laureates were born in other countries. Uh, immigrants don't diminish America, they are America. So I really see it, if you start talking about it that way with people, and then, this is a great New Hampshire fact for all you fiscally careful people, uh, the uh, comprehensive immigration reform bill that passed with Republican support in the Senate brought the debt down by $158 billion because people start paying their taxes. That's how you pay for some of the security and with your question, how you make sure these uh, applications are processed so people can be accepted or rejected into our country. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, George. Next question comes from Carolyn Morrill. Hi. Hi, Carolyn. When you become president, if there was one thing that would be guaranteed as an accomplishment in your first year, what would that be? Uh, I say that would be doing something about our health care and the cost of our health care, especially pharmaceuticals. Um, I would really like to bring the cost down of pharmaceuticals. Uh, they are nearly 20% of our health care costs right now, and there are ways you can do it. Uh, while still respecting that we have a lot of great companies in America with a lot of employees, but the costs have gone way too high and it's um, up to, as I said, almost 20% of our health care. So I would do that. I would do it with more competition, more generics, so you bring the cost down. Uh, Medicare negotiation, right now we're locked into these prices and we're not unlocking the power of 43 million seniors. That is pretty powerful uh, to bring prices down. And then the other, in addition to immigration reform, I'd also like to do something about climate change, but hopefully we'll get to that later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Next question comes from Nancy Seeger. Yes. Thank you for being here. 
Thank you, Nancy. Um, my question is, are you in favor of Medicare for all? And if so, how do you plan to implement it? If not, do you have a fiscally responsible alternative? Sure. I want to get to universal health care. And to me, that means uh, bringing down the cost, but it also means making sure that people are covered. And we have seen great improvements with the Affordable Care Act with the number of people who are covered, but we still have to do more. Uh, premiums are too high right now for a lot of people. And the way you do that is, first of all, keeping the Affordable, health, Affordable Care Act in place. Uh, this president is trying to repeal it. He's going to take your protections away when it comes to pre-existing conditions if he stays much longer. Um, and so I'd keep that in place. I would then bring the cost down. Senator Shaheen has a great idea with cost sharing. Uh, and there's also reinsurance. And then the public option. That is where I would get into making sure that we have a cost-effective option. And you can do it with Medicare, and you could also do it with Medicaid. And both of those plans, the short term with the cost sharing and the reinsurance, and then the longer term, uh, which is about making sure we have a public option, would bring competition in and bring those costs down. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you. Next question comes from Gary Evans. Hi, Gary Hi. Evans. Hi, welcome to New Hampshire. Thank you. So in this country, we have about 35,000 gun deaths a year. Mm -hmm. We have a president who's best friends with the NRA. So I think it's unlikely we're going to get any legislation from him. So when you take office, what would you do to actually do something about this? Thank you. Uh, I've been working on this for a long time. I used to be a prosecutor, and I saw uh, the devastating effects of gun violence, not just in the massacres we see, like in Parkland and Sandy Hook, and what we just saw in the synagogue. Um, but we also have day-to-day -day violence, street violence. We have kids killed every single day. So I think, first of all, universal background checks makes the most sense as something that we could pass that would reduce suicides. It would also reduce domestic violence. Like New Hampshire, I come from a state uh, that has a proud tradition of hunting and fishing. So I look at all these proposals and I say, does this hurt my Uncle Dick in his deer stand? Um, and when I look at things like uh, universal background checks, uh, they don't do that. There's something that'll save lives. Um, this idea of doing something with domestic violence. Uh, you have uh, something called uh, the boyfriend loophole right now uh, that allows people to get guns who've had domestic violence convictions who are in relationships. That's actually the bill that I lead, and I think we're going to be able to pass it as part of the Violence Against Women Act. Um, and so there is just so much that we can do. And uh, when I look at uh, what's happened in this country, I always think of those Sandy Hook parents that were in my office the day that we had to tell them that this bill we'd worked on so much, uh, the, the universal background checks, that the vast majority of the public supports was going down. And I still remember this mom that was sitting there telling me the story, how she had been um, in that firehouse that day waiting for her child. And she had kissed him goodnight, goodbye that morning. Uh, he had pointed to the school aide on the door, a picture of his school aide that was with him all the time because he had autism and he couldn't talk and he loved that woman. And as that mom sent sobbing in that firehouse, of course, she was sobbing for her son, but in the back of her mind she thought of that school aide and she knew that they'd lost her too. And when they found them shot up, that teacher had her arms around that little boy. That family had the courage to come to Washington to try to get something done with guns. And the people that worked there didn't have the courage to pass it. That is now changing in this country because 
the House of Representatives have become the People's House, they've now passed that bill. And so it is now up to us to put a president in place that's going to finally get this done. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Senator, a follow on that one. Do you believe there are any firearms that are currently commercially available that should not be? Um, um, I'm, I would want to look at all the firearms, but I clearly think there are some. You don't need bump stocks as an accessory. Um, there are issues uh, with the magazines and the number that people can, um, can uh, purchase. And then there are some that are uh, more used for the military than they should be used um, out there in the field. Okay. Uh, social media question now coming from Pat Kelvington, who okay. asks, will you keep the tax cuts? Okay, very good. Um, uh, social media, hello, social <laughs> media person. Um, I, um, I believe that we need to repeal parts of that uh, Republican tax bill, and I would repeal uh, the regressive parts. That tax bill was put together uh, without a lot of discussion, and there were huge problems with it, as you have now seen. Um, one of the major problems is that too much of it went to the top, and it added too much to the debt. It added a trillion dollars to our debt. And so examples of things that I would change, and there are other things as well, would be the way the international taxes were calculated. Unless you have money in the Bahamas, this shouldn't really be your issue. Um, the way they did it is they did an average of all the countries instead of the individual tax rates of the countries. That actually added a $150 billion to our debt. And we could use that money uh, for infrastructure. We could use it for a number of things. Uh, the way they did the corporate tax rate, instead of going down, I favored uh, going down some, but they went all the way down to 21%. And every point was $100 billion. So even if you take it to 25% now, you save $400 billion. So those are a few examples of things that I would change. Next question from Richard Bruno. Mm -hmm. Hi, Richard. Hi, Senator. Thank you for taking my sure. question. Thank you for being here, too. Thank you. I want to get your position on uh, campaign finance reform, because I think um, overall it affects many things, and certainly how our government uh, brings people into the government, for one thing, how it affects and trickles down to many subjects that we deal with. Can you sure. give me a feel for um, that? We can't have a working democracy if uh, we can't vote. And right now we have states uh, that have put in place some really restrictive uh, voter restriction laws that have reduced the number of people that can vote. That's not what America is about. This has always been a bipartisan issue to get more people to vote. Uh, the other thing that's happened is we have a foreign power that's invaded our election. So I would um, put in place legislation to protect our elections. As president, you have the bully pulpit where you can do that. I would push for uh, legislation that would register every kid to vote uh, when they turn 18 uh, that's eligible to vote. That's something I've been carrying. And I would just send the message out as president that you should vote. It's part of our civic duty. Our states that we both live in um, have a very high rate of voting. And that has made people want to participate more in our democracy. So I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, at least if you participate and you vote, even if you don't always agree with who came out of it, you were part of it. And when we suppress the vote and leave people out, like we're seeing in some of the states across the country and especially targeted at African-Americans, at people of color, um, then we do not have a democracy where everyone's at the table. Okay. Just a, a follow-up, because sure. uh, how about the campaign financing portion right. of that? So that, I am a strong believer in overturning Citizens United. Um, okay. I think that we can do it 
Um, first of all, you have to do it by a constitutional amendment. You can do some things legislatively, uh, like have more uh, transparency, um, and I'd be, of course, in favor of that. But the best way to do it uh, is to say, I'm sorry, corporations aren't people, people are people, and uh, really overturn Citizens United. Other things that you can do is to try to make sure uh, that uh, we help with financing campaigns. I am a big believer in that. Uh, there is some legislation out there for matching funds so that if you can reach a third, you know, if you can show you make a certain threshold that there's public financing that kicks in. Uh, there's a lot of states, including mine, that do that. I think you should do that at the federal level as well. We just want to create an even playing field. And I am someone that uh, ran without money uh, for office. When I first ran for office um, for the U.S. Senate, no one could pronounce my name and they wouldn't call me back when I'm calling around for dollars and you have to raise like $10 million. And I finally got out my old address book and I looked up everyone I knew in my life and I set what is still an all-time Senate record, I raised $17,000 from ex-boyfriends. Uh, and as my husband has pointed out, it is not an expanding base. Um, so I think you, I led deliberately with uh, letting people share because I think you really have to allow people to vote for your first thing. And then the second thing is how you finance these elections uh, so it's fair. Because otherwise, uh, you're just not going to get people running that should run. You're going to have only millionaires and billionaires running um, or you're going to have only people that are controlled by special interest. Um, neither of those categories is me. Uh, it's not how I run my campaigns. And so I think if you want to get a broad range of candidates that are looking out for you and have your back, you need to get the dark money out of politics and change these campaign finance laws. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you, Richard. Next question comes from Lynn Healy. Good evening. Glad Thank to have you, you here. Yes. Um, my question is two parts. Um, I am interested in knowing what your vision is for the United States on the world stage. And the second part is, who do you have advising you in this area? Sure. Well, I want the United States to be a leader um, on the uh, world stage, and I want us to regain that leadership. Uh, I think Donald Trump has done a lot of damage to that leadership. Uh, he has done it with um, the mean tweets he sends out all the time, the tweets by uh, trying to conduct foreign policy by tweet. I don't agree with that. Um, and he has done it by not standing with our allies. And it is everything from getting out of the International Climate Change Agreement, which I disagree with and would sign us back in on day one of my presidency. He did it when he um, got out of the uh, Iran agreement. While there were some issues with that agreement, I didn't think we should exit it and leave our allies um, having to hold that up. Uh, he did it uh, in how he's dealt with nuclear weapons. Uh, he has repeatedly not stood with our allies. Uh, the other thing he's done, which is really damaging to our foreign policy that I would change, is that he has coddled up to dictators, whether it be Putin, uh, whether it be how he said it's not a big deal when Kim Jong-un has once again launched missiles, launched missiles into the sea, uh, whether it is uh, how he didn't take a strong stand uh, when the um, uh, Saudi Arabian uh, leader went out there, the prince, and denied uh, killing a journalist who was with an American paper when in fact now we know they lured him uh, to a council, uh, killed him, and had him dismembered. That all happened. Um, and so I would stand with our allies. I would take a strong stance 
um, against these dictators. I would make sure that we are rising to the challenges of our time, uh, like nuclear weapons and doing something uh, when it comes to climate change and working uh, with our allies when it comes to um, uh, bad, bad actors and bad players on the world stage. Um, and I would also revamp our military when it comes to things like cybersecurity. Russia may not have used a missile or a tank, but they invaded our election all the same. And you have a follow-up? Oh, I did. Who I'm listening who, to. Yes. yes. Okay, well, I Sorry. have a good team of people um, that um, and a few of them are advising a few candidates, but they're personal uh, friends of mine. Uh, uh, Jake Sullivan is someone that uh, actually is living in New Hampshire, um, and he is uh, someone that I brought to Washington for his first job. He was my counsel, um, and then he went and worked uh, for the State Department and Secretary Clinton. Uh, his brother, Tom, uh, was also a policy advisor to John Kerry and worked for me for five years as my deputy chief of staff and later married my chief of staff. You know, very <laughs> romantic, very romantic. Um, and so those uh, Sullivan brothers are both from Minnesota and uh, good friends of mine. Another Minnesotan named Tom Nides, uh, who is supporting me, was uh, number two at the State Department, uh, the Deputy Secretary of State. Um, and then I have a number of other people uh, that have worked on foreign policy, including in uh, my own office, that are uh, very experienced. So that is just the beginning, and there's many more people I've been involved in this. Senator Shaheen is a true leader um, and uh, is someone I talk to all the time about foreign policy. She was just in Munich um, uh, leading the way uh, after uh, there was the Trump administration didn't show the kind of leadership you should have on that international stage. So she's someone else I would listen to. Do you know Gomer's gollies? Golly, 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 Sergeant, I just can't get over it. Get to know Gomer's gollies on Gomer Pile. Sponsored by Heritage Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, Electric. We're going to start with Connie Evans. Good evening, Senator. Hey, Connie. We have a growing list, growing by the day, of Democratic candidates. How do you set yourself apart from the rest? I'm the only one that announced in a blizzard, in a foot of snow. I thought that you guys would like that in New Hampshire. Um, I also um, am from the heartland, um, a very important area. And I am someone that likes to get things done. Um, I don't think you should be running for president uh, if you don't have things you want to do and you aren't able to show how you're going to pay for it and you don't have a plan for getting it done. And that's what I've tried to do uh, with every job I've had and that's how I govern. Um, so that's something that's really key uh, for my candidacy. I'm also someone that loves people, um, and I like getting out there, and I think that's important not only in a candidate, uh, but also uh, in a president. Thank you. Thank you, Connie. Another social media question coming in here from Lynn Lowell. Okay. She asks, what is your stance on UBI, universal basic income? Many candidates are actually looking into this. Sure. Um, I think the stepping back from these specific proposals, um, I think that the most important thing we need is to make sure that people who work hard in this country um, are able to make it in America and that people who need help because something goes wrong in their life, like addiction or mental health, um, are able to recover or people that have disabilities, um, we are watching out for them. 
Um, and right now in this country, uh, we have a situation uh, where the game is not fair to so many people. And while our economy has gotten stronger, you look at what's happened um, since the downturn, and that's because of our businesses and our workers, and people have done a very good job, and some policies were put in place to steer us in the right direction, uh, it is still not shared prosperity to the point that we'd like. And so these are some things that I would do. Uh, I would increase the minimum wage. It has been stuck federally uh, where it is for uh, something like 10 years at a little over $7 an hour. Um, I would also uh, make sure that we are doing a better job with paid family leave uh, and child care for our country. Um, I would make sure that our public schools are funded and that we are really focused on helping kids to get degrees in jobs that we have now. And that means why I'm such a big fan of one-year degrees and two-year degrees, because there's a lot of kids that would normally just go off the grid or maybe not even graduate from high school. And I think that that's the way to go when you look at the needs in our economy. We need people with four-year degrees. We need engineers. We need people with PhDs. So all we can do to get people um, who are not really feeling like they're part of this economy, maybe they've had a hard family life, whatever the issue is, to go into those areas like technology, engineering, uh, math, science. Uh, that has got to be one of the key focuses um, in what we do here. Um, I would also make sure that people have retirement. I'm a strong believer in Social Security, of course, um, but for a lot of people, that's not enough. There are 49 million Americans right now uh, that don't even have retirement outside of Social Security. That is a lot of people. And more and more young people are um, going into jobs where they don't have a 401k, or maybe they're working at a small employer. So I put forward a proposal, um, actually with another senator from Delaware, uh, Chris Coons, um, just two weeks ago, and it's called Up Savings Accounts, and it's something I'd want to do as president. And what it does is it says that if you're working at a place that doesn't have a 401k, uh, that you should be able to start saving for your retirement. And it puts about 50 cents an hour into an account. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it is $600,000 by the time someone retires. And it is something that you can get if you are a part-time worker. It is something you can get if you change jobs. Um, and here's the best part. Uh, as you know, a lot of people don't have emergency expenses. Four out of 10 Americans couldn't afford a $400 emergency room visit. The first $2,500 each year would go for emergency expenses if you need it, if you can show you have them. You can take that out each year. It's really getting at uh, the issues we have uh, right now for savings because the world is changing. It is paid for, because I've told you I show how I'm going to pay for stuff. Uh, it is helpful with very important tax credits for small businesses, and that is taken for ones that are under 15 employees, ones that are under 30 employees, um, and that is um, taken care of. It doesn't include the very smallest under 10 employees, uh, but that is taken care of uh, by repealing parts of that tax bill we just talked about and putting that money toward these tax credits to help small businesses, to help them help their employees have a retirement. Next question comes from Mary Woods. Yes. Hi, Mary. Senator. Um, welcome. Thank you. As president, what would you do to redevelop our rural areas and our small towns that have lost jobs and population to this global economy that we're in? 
Very good question because um, I think we all know that uh, there's really good things about living in rural America and actually the cost of living um, is less there as long as you're able to have the amenities to live there. And I believe that kids that grow up in rural New Hampshire or in um, any rural area of our country uh, should be able to stay there. So what do they need? Well, uh, they need to have health care, and that means rural hospitals, including our critical access hospitals. Um, that means things like broadband, rural broadband, uh, which, by the way, if they have hooked up the entire country of Iceland, uh, which is really a kind of a tough place with a lot of mountains and stuff and glaciers, please tell me why we couldn't do this, um, and, and volcanoes, uh, that we can't do this uh, in New Hampshire and in our country. And um, New Hampshire's actually done some good things with broadband, uh, but there's much more that we can do. Uh, it means having uh, economic development. And unfortunately, this administration has really uh, not done enough when it comes to that Rural Economic Development Fund, really important in New Hampshire. Uh, you have some farms, of course, uh, but you don't have as many as some states. And so that economic development piece of it uh, is really key. Um, um, doing things that just make it easier uh, for people to live in rural America. And the last thing I would add um, is this policy I've rolled out on mental health and drugs. Rural America has been hit hard uh, with drug addiction, and that includes opioids. Uh, New Hampshire's in the top five states, uh, but it also includes um, um, meth and other kinds of drugs that hit communities of color particularly hard. Um, I have proposed this because of personal experience myself with my dad who struggled with alcoholism his whole life. Uh, he had two DWIs when I was in middle, middle school and then he got his third uh, when I was uh, just about to get married in the 90s. And that was when the rules changed and you could choose between jail or treatment and he chose treatment and our family was there and I told him what it was like growing up when I had to take the keys away from him uh, when he was um, uh, driving drunk or when he wasn't there for graduations. And through the whole thing, I love my dad. I think it's made me a better uh, legislator because of that and a better president I will be. Because uh, I get that you can make mistakes and you can still work with people and still try to find common ground. But it's also helped me to come up with some ideas um, on how we can fix this and make it better. And that includes taking some of those money uh, from the opioid uh, companies that have made money off of rural America and made money off of getting people hooked um, by putting that money into treatment. And that includes beds for opioids, but also beds for treatment for mental health um, and other, other problems that people have. Uh, we went from this institutions, state hospitals, to community-based. The intention was good, but then we don't have the beds to help people. And it's our police officers. Go talk to any of your officers in New Hampshire uh, who are on the front line who have to be the cops and the doctors trying to deal with this as opposed to getting people uh, help on the front line. So that is something that isn't always talked about when people talk about rural America and what we need to do, but I think that's a major part of it in addition to the infrastructure and the water, uh, something you know well here, and sewer, and making sure we've got um, the rural broadband and the infrastructure in place and the schools and everything else. So. Um, I've had a lot of fun going around rural New Hampshire um, with our family. We spent the Easter weekend um, cruising around up to Littleton to that candy counter. Uh, we went to Walpole, went to Easter Sunday Church in Walpole. It was so beautiful. Um, then we uh, I went out uh, to Miller State Park 
and made the maybe too early decision to scramble up that trail uh, to, um, uh, I want to get this right now, is it Pak Manabnak? <laughs> I got it right, almost? Okay, no, come on, tell me. No. Manabnak. Okay, so close, so close. <laughs> um, and so we scrambled up the Wapak Trail uh, when maybe we should have walked up the road. Uh, there was a lot of mud and some snow, uh, but we got to the top and it was beautiful. So I not only care about it from a policy standpoint, I love rural America, and that's why I am going to be here a lot. So thank you. Thank you, Mary. Two points for attempting the pronunciation there. That was uh, Oh, come on. A, I was so tight, close. I, I don't know if anybody else would have even gone there, so congratulations. I can do Winnipesaukee. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, next up is Leonard Morrill. Thank you for coming. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you a quote that you made and ask you a question about it. Your quote is, if Congress continues to sit on its hands and the drug companies continue to stash cash in their stockings, Americans will forever be bound in the Jacob Marley-like chains of high prices. What have you done in Congress to change that perception? I'm just laughing. I remember I wrote that, um, and it was, a, it was an editorial I wrote about the ghosts of coming back for Jacob. There was actually more to it than just quoting Jacob Marley and the uh, ghosts of Christmas past um, and the Grinch. I was making them the Grinch, um, and I was making them, of course, Scrooge as well. So the whole idea here was uh, that uh, we have to move on this, and I think there are too many people um, in this uh, Washington uh, that coddle up to the pharmaceutical companies um, and uh, they may think they own Washington but they don't own me um, and part of this means how do we get more competition I, I passed out some ideas for this but it is bringing prices down by unleashing the power of 43 million Americans to negotiate Medicare it is bringing less expensive drugs in other from other countries in uh, my state we can see Canada from our porch um, <laughs> and we see what they have the prices up there and then another thing that is um, really outrageous is that right now pharmaceutical companies pay generics to keep their products off the market. So these are, so we, by the way, you can have generics, good American generics, good American pharmaceutical companies. They shouldn't be paying each other to keep their products off the market because the one that loses are consumers. That would save about $3 billion uh, in just a 10-year period. That is a congressional budget office score neutral body. Uh, and that is a bill I have with Senator Grassley, Republican from Iowa. Um, and uh, there is a lot of interest on both sides of the aisle, but you need a president that's going to use the bully pulpit of the White House to push this through. Um, and the public is so on our side on this that we're going to be able to get it done. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you, Leonard. Next question comes from Joan Krimlisk. Hello. Hi, Joan. Um, I was wondering what your agricultural uh, federal policy improvements would be for small rural farms. Oh, sure. Thank you. Uh, I care a lot about farms. I grew up not too far from farms um, and uh, spent a lot of time with my friends whose families um, had still relatives on farms. So um, I um, love small farms. And one of the things we've seen, sadly, especially with dairy farms in this country, is more and more of them closing down. Um, and that is why we have the Farm Bill. Uh, and it's not a perfect bill, uh, but it's really important to nutrition. And it's also very important to uh, make sure that we have conservation. The Farm Bill is actually one of the biggest sources uh, for conservation programs um, in this country. 
And the last part of it is, of course, farming. And I think one of the things that you need to do is make sure the money is targeted to the small farms. If you look back at my record, you're going to see a very interesting fight I got in when I was a brand new senator, um, when what I did actually passed like a decade later, uh, but it was to focus the money on the small farms when it came to the crop insurance and things like that. And there was an editorial in the New York Times commending me for fighting it, saying that, but I sadly lost to 26 big rice farmers or something like that. I don't know what it was, but it was, it was about trying to target it so that money didn't go to the Beverly Hills 90210 area code. And I say this um, not because um, I am against farming by any means. I, my state is fifth in the country for exporting agricultural products. And we have small farms, we have big farms. But I think it is very important uh, that we have a structure in place uh, so that we have a safety net for our farmers, uh, but we make sure that we target um, what they need um, and target the farms that need the help. And the other thing about this is making sure over the years we've included fruits and vegetables um, and other uh, types of products, and that's also very important as well. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Joan. Next question yeah. comes from Nathan Cooper. Hi, Senator. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Um, this question, um, I have a lot to deal with because I have a, a young son and I'm also a public high school teacher by by trade. So thank I was, you for doing that. Thank you very much. Yes. And um, my question is, what role do you see the federal government and the Department of Education playing within education uh, if you're elected president? Well, we know that most of uh, public education funding is through the states, but the federal government plays a very important role, and that is pushing policy and making sure uh, that we are watching over uh, so that all our kids get educated. And what I would do is look at our public education system and make sure it is best as possible and it's getting funded. I speak from the heart. Um, I went to the public schools, K through 12. My daughter went to K through 12 public schools and my mom taught second grade until she was 70 years old. Um, and she loved it and I still have people that come up to me and say she was their favorite teacher. Uh, so for me, uh, public schools are really uh, the basis uh, for how we are, what we do as a country. That means making sure that teachers are paid well, and there's some really good proposals out there uh, for doing that. Uh, it also means that we are funding things like uh, special education, uh, because when we tell states they have to do things and then the money doesn't follow, uh, that is a big problem. Uh, we had uh, some wrong turns a bit here and there, or at least with good intentions. This was before my time with the No Child Left Behind. Um, interestingly enough, my whole Minnesota delegation, and I would have been with them if I was there, opposed that bill, <laughs> Democrats and Republicans, uh, because they saw what was ahead, which was despite the good intentions and some good things in the bill, um, it was doing over-testing. It wasn't actually um, measuring uh, what we needed to measure. Um, and I was glad that we made the um, uh, changes recently um, with, our other, with our new bill that amended that bill and got rid of some of the bad parts of it that actually gave more power to local schools and measured what we should be measuring. So those are all things. There's been some good work done recently, but I think one of my passions, as you can tell, is to make sure these kids are graduating and they're getting degrees uh, eventually in the things where they can work and be happy. And part of that means better partnering with our community colleges in the high schools and allowing classes to be taken and making sure then the high schools aren't robbed of their money, yes. but that we find a way to do it that works for everyone. Um, and that means 
some, you know, it means um, allowing these kids to go to those classes. It means apprenticeships. Um, we can do this because it's better for our country to do it that way. Is Thank there you. something else you asked? Did I get it most? No, of? you got it all. Okay, good. Thank all you so right. Much. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you, Nathan. Next question comes from Brenda Bouchard. Hi, Hi, Brenda. Hi. Thank you for being yes. here. My husband passed recently after living with younger onset Alzheimer's disease oh, for 12 sorry. years. Thank you. My mother has Alzheimer's, and my sister was diagnosed last summer. By 2050, it's anticipated that 14 million Americans will have Alzheimer's or a related dementia at a projected cost of $1.1 trillion in today's dollars. So what will you do to deal with this national public health crisis that is impacting all yeah, of us? It is. And, well, the first thing you want to do, especially, and I'm so sorry for your loss Thank and you. what you're experiencing right now and being a caretaker, mm -hmm. I'm sure, um, and what you have seen and how hard it is. Um, and so the first thing I think we need to do is to continue to work for a cure. That mm -hmm. won't bring your husband back, um, and it won't big, uh, bring your other family members back, um, but it is the right thing to do. And um, I have always been uh, sponsors of and led some of the efforts uh, to fund uh, NIH research and to fund research across the country. There's been some very cool research being done actually at uh, University of Minnesota and at Mayo. One of the things we've learned in our state, and, and I know Dartmouth has done some work on this as well, is that the <clears throat> sooner that you can detect Alzheimer's, um, at first that sounds, is that really an advancement? But it is, because then you can start figuring out what we can do and what's working and what's not working with these cures. Um, so that's the first thing. As a sideline, when we were in the Ted Cruz-induced government shutdown, um, I gave my salary um, that I would have brought in uh, to NIH for the research because the research was being stopped to their foundation. Uh, the second thing is caretakers, um, and I think we should do more. As president, I would do more to help caretakers in terms of tax credits or so many of the caretakers that are having to leave their jobs or go part-time. There are caretakers that are in the sandwich generation. They have their parents they're taking care of, and then they still have kids. Uh, so that would be a big part of it as well. And then the final thing is a little more of the Alzheimer's Association has done such a great job with this. It's working with the community so they understand when people have Alzheimer's uh, what that means. Um, so because you still have people who are functioning that are in their homes that are going shopping and we've done these great educational efforts around the country where people actually start understanding how should I act I'm a young kid as a clerk in a grocery store or gas station when someone comes in with Alzheimer's. Um, and there's actual beautiful stories um, about how kids, even young kids, um, have changed their way they interact uh, with people with that disease when they start to understand it. So that's a, um, uh, one of the things that I love that's going on. It's a community effort um, at a time when our world is fractured around us with our politics. Those kinds of things are even important beyond uh, what they do for the people with the disease. Thank so, you. Thank you. Thank you, Brenda. Next question comes from Bess Mosley. Thank Hi, you. Senator. Hi, Senator. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Let me get this right. So I have my niece and nephew own an independent pharmacy. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts on how to prevent the CVSs of the country who own insurance companies from unfairly crushing independent mm -hmm. pharmacies. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, I like um, competition. I think I've used that word a lot here today. Um, and I like having independent pharmacies. We have 
Um, the ones that I know, the pharmacists, are they're almost like giving advice to people in the role of a, a medical advisor. So a lot of this is about just the consolidation we're seeing in general in our country. Uh, that is a major problem. And um, I believe that we actually have to do something about it. Interestingly enough, uh, Donald Trump has talked about this, uh, but he actually hasn't done anything about it. And there are things that we can do um, to make sure that we have um, small as well as big companies in this country. Uh, the first is that we, when we start having a uh, lack of competition and monopoly power in any area, uh, we should be able to look back at what happened and look at it again and have the people in place in the FTC and the Justice Department that are as sophisticated uh, as these people that are proposing these mergers or moving in and shutting out competition. Um, and the way you do that is with something called the antitrust laws. Um, New Hampshire's a great place to care about antitrust laws um, because you are a place of a lot of small businesses. Um, and when you have big companies come in and start limiting power, a great example, not in the pharmaceutical area, although there is a lot of uh, examples there, um, is online travel. So you think you're getting a good deal? Well, one day, just check it out on the internet <laughs> where they are. Uh, they're all owned, but I think it's 90% of them are owned by only two companies. They just all have different names, mm -hmm. Expedia and this. Uh, Waze, that's so cool, right? Well, Google Maps just bought them. Um, and so then you stop having innovation and you certainly stop having a competition for prices and quality of service when you shut out um, a lot of these um, a lot of these um, small businesses. And so that's why I've also proposed some changes to our antitrust laws and try to remind people all the time uh, that this was originally Republicans that wanted this. Why? Because they wanted to make sure we had real capitalism that was strong. Uh, Sherman of the Sherman Act was a Republican senator from Ohio. Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican. And so if this is about business and competition, we should be joining together to say there is too much big. Uh, when you're down to railroad, class one rail in this country that transports stuff to market, uh, there are only four, there used to be 63. Four is the same number on the monopoly board, right? So I am not just saying every company is bad that's big. I've got a lot of big companies in my state that are very good. I just wanna make sure that we have competition, that it's not screwing with consumers and it's not pushing out small businesses like your pharmacies. Okay, thank you. Thank you, thank Bess. You. Next question comes from Mary Christine. Hi. So you've talked a little bit about uh, your plans to update the infrastructure in the United States and your campaign on a website uh, has cited your involvement in getting funding for fixing the uh, I-35 bridge as a sign that you can that you can do this, that you can secure the funding. Okay. Uh, my understanding is that one of the things that contributed to the collapse of that bridge was a structural design flaw. So my question is, do you believe fast tracking updates to our infrastructure and really making that a priority will actually increase the likelihood of having structural design flaws in new infrastructure. Okay. Uh, well, my infrastructure package is about funding infrastructure so this doesn't happen again. Um, I use that as one example because it just happens to be eight blocks from my house and it was an eight-lane highway that little, literally went down uh, in the middle of the Mississippi River on a beautiful summer day, 13 people were killed. And as I said that day, a bridge just shouldn't fall down in America, uh, but it did. And so 
one of the issues is that we have a president in the White House that has on election night on, he said it on election night, said he wanted to do something about infrastructure. And we have not seen anything happen uh, short of what Congress did before he got there. Uh, and yet we have um, bridges and roads with D ratings uh, just this year from the uh, Society of Civil Engineers. Uh, we have the Manchester Rail that I raised earlier, so I won't go into that. Uh, you've got schools that are crumbling in places like Baltimore, uh, where they literally didn't have heat. You have water systems and sewer system, ask the people of Flint. Um, and that is why I propose this trillion dollar infrastructure package. Um, I think it is really important uh, that we don't just talk the talk and we show how we're going to pay for things. Uh, that is what I've done with this infrastructure package. And um, I, the 35W bridge was um, about a structural defect, as you point out, with that bridge that was done decades and decades before. Um, and after that happened, the question is, what do you do? And what we did uh, in our state um, despite the resistance of the governor as they went in um, and we have fixed a bunch of our infrastructure and went back in and guess what a few years later we were voted the number one place to do business by CNBC in part because of the infrastructure so I just saw that in my own state I want to take that uh, in terms of uh, funding for infrastructure I've showed how I'm going to pay for it which is by taking the regressive parts of that tax bill we talked about 400 billion from one part of it, 150 billion from another, do an infrastructure financing authority, uh, making sure we have a carve out for rural in there, um, which if you just put $25 billion federal money, conservative estimate, you're gonna get 300 matching uh, from state and local because they've been waiting uh, and private, they've been waiting for that kind of money to come in. Um, and then bonds uh, is another way you can do this. So those are the ideas I have. Thank you. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Mary. We have time for just a little bit more here. And okay. I'm curious, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your situation with your dad. Mm -hmm. So many people in New Hampshire and across the country have a family member who's dealt with addiction. Certainly mm -hmm. I have. And you're torn between uh, the fear of losing them, the love you have for them, and the anger of the situations that are provoked there. So you're clearly a very strong person. Was there ever a moment in that relationship when you thought you might walk away? Um, no, but that doesn't mean that for some families, especially for some people when they have um, someone in their family with alcohol or drug addiction, it's actually not safe for them uh, to stay around it or the best thing may be to walk away uh, for a while. Uh, in my case, it was pretty interesting because my dad uh, got those DWIs when I was in middle, middle school. He, was, he kept being uh, my dad and seeing me. He kept doing his job, um, but at the same time, he told the world that he wasn't drinking anymore. Uh, when in truth, we would find the liquor bottles in the basement um, or he'd be drinking out of the back seat of a car. So I just kept pushing him and pushing him. I was, then I went to college, I went to law school, I came back. Um, and then uh, when I saw it was still going on, um, I actually called his employer and said, uh, would you help me please? He was drinking this week and it's so dangerous. Um, and they said, I, well, no, no, he just celebrated his sobriety. That's <laughs> I'm like, no. Um, and so um, I feel like I tried everything I could, which a lot of families do. And then a year later, uh, he got that third DWI. And luckily, he actually uh, didn't um, um, ram into anyone in a car or hurt someone else, but it easily could have happened. Um, and in his own words, when he got that treatment, he was pursued by grace with his family and his friends and his faith and the community that came around him. 
um, and he is now at age 91 uh, in assisted living. A few months ago, uh, he told me, well, it's hard to get a drink when you're in assisted living. <laughs> uh, he was kidding. Um, but uh, in truth, his AA group still comes there to see him, uh, which is a pretty cool thing. And so uh, that is what's made a difference to him. And when you look at, uh, there's a few things going on here. Uh, one is that for drugs and alcohol and mental health, we have to do a better job of detecting it early and getting people the help and getting rid of that stigma. And that means counselors in school and things like that. Uh, the second piece of it is making sure that there's the beds. Uh, when we, I talked about that before, we made that transition. You know, um, and then the third thing is when people get out and they've recovered that they are able to get a job. Um, and the final thing is just pushing insurance companies uh, with mental health parity to be able to cover things because we've had a real issue with that. And one last thing of inspiration. Do you remember that both New Hampshire and Minnesota love the Winter Olympics, right? <laughs> um, do you remember that incredible uh, cross-country ski race of the pair of the two women that weren't expected to win. One of them named Jessie Diggins from the state of Minnesota and her ski just made it over the line and they won the gold medal. And this was just in the last Olympics. Well, um, she actually overcame an eating disorder and won the gold medal. She said she couldn't even sometimes put on her cross-country ski suit because she thought it made her look fat, right? And anorexia is actually the number one cause, mental illness cause of death of women. And um, what I fought for there, um, uh, working with a number of women senators, was to make sure we had parity and that we would be able to have um, uh, beds for mental illnesses like anorexia as well. And so it was pretty cool. It wasn't because of me that she got that treatment. She got it before. But to hear her tell her story of how she won the gold medal after overcoming a mental health disorder like that, wow, anything and everything is possible. And that's why I believe so much in doing something about mental health and addiction. That's all the time we have for conversation with the candidate. Thank you okay. to the candidate, Thank Senator so Klobuchar. Thank we appreciate you. your time okay. here in New Hampshire. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.